Our Father, we're again full that you have, in your grace, <clears throat> extended your saving hand toward each of us. We thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death on the cross, and for this miraculous event called the resurrection. We ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate now our hearts to the truths that we need to know to understand the resurrection in its biblical perspective. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I want to turn this, uh, this evening into 1 John 1 uh, as we start because I want to be sure that we understand the difference between two words. And um, the words are resurrection and resuscitation. Resuscitation um, well, actually, three words. Uh, let me write them on here. These are three words that, if you're not careful, you um, won't read Scripture right in certain areas. And, and people tend to be sloppy about things. So let's clarify vocabulary a moment. Um, in 1 John 1, um, verse 2, or verses 1 and 2, it's the bodily presence of the Lord Jesus that John insists upon. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we beheld and our hands have handled. The life was manifest, we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life. And of course, this refers to the incarnation, but by way of resurrection and so forth, it refers to his resurrection body, and it's, it's observable by all the empirical senses. So when the Lord Jesus appeared to Thomas, um, Thomas could touch him, Thomas could feel him. There, the, he, the, we would say scientifically today, his resurrection body had mass that, that weighed something, uh, that took up space. Uh, the body consumed food, and yet the body had this strange ability to disappear and reappear. So no, we really don't know what it's made of. The resurrection body is just a new thing. It's never happened in history before, the Lord Jesus. Um, it's scheduled to happen again. But what goes on here, nobody knows. Nobody's done a chemical analysis, a physical analysis or anything, electrical analysis, molecular analysis. Nobody's had the tools to do that. So the resurrection body is an unknown. But in its composition. But at least what is known about it is that it's open to empirical um, perception by all the senses. And most importantly, it's indestructible. Uh, we'll get into that theme a little bit more tonight. The resurrection body is immortal. So, it's, it's subject to all the, the uh, senses, 
And if you flip over to 1 Corinthians 15, which is the central passage in the New Testament on resurrection, um, it's just one to remember that any time you have a question about resurrection, uh, just remember 1 Corinthians 15. You want to, in your mind, have this as your key passage. And um, in 1 Corinthians 15, which we mentioned last time, how Christ appeared to 500 people and so forth, um, Paul goes on to mention certain things about it. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, um, verse uh, 40, there are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. By the way, this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in this section, assumes the classification scheme from Genesis. Because remember, you go up a few verses, and uh, verse 39 is a direct allusion to Genesis 1. And here's an example, folks, why you want to be so careful about disconnecting pieces of the Scripture. You can't do that. You've got to keep the Scriptures as a unit. Because here Paul, in verse 39, clearly says, flesh is not the same flesh. There's one flesh of man, another flesh of beast, another flesh of birds, another flesh of fish. And he's distinguishing what? Kinds. And... There's a certain kind, he says. There's a certain categories. There's man. There's animals. There's all kinds of animals in here. There's only one kind of man. And you can't cross these kinds. And we live in an age that's so dominated by evolutionary thinking that people don't pick this up. And the sad thing is that the rest of the passage in 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't mean too much if you eliminate verse 39. Verse 39 introduces this whole idea of the differences. And he says there are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon. So he's distinguishing that, the one and the many that we've talked about. Now, he makes a series of assertions that describe this resurrection thing. And in verse 42, he says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. Now, the metaphor there is what? That we, it's an everyday experience. It's gardening. He's talking about sowing a seed, and the seed becomes a plant. And in the insect world, we have the metamorphosis of the, you know, the caterpillar butterfly metamorphosis. Um, but there's continuity there. And so... God, in speaking through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, is trying to touch something in our experience that we do know to tell us something about our the not yet experience that we don't know. There's an analogy here. And so God says that if you want to think properly about this, this thing here, this resurrection, think in terms of a seed. Think in terms of planting a seed. Totally different construction. And you watch this amazing situation, this germination of a seed. And all the DNA organized and it deploys and you get this, this plant out of this thing. All out of the seed. All the little blueprint is all in that little tiny seed. And you can have an oak tree out of it, but it, the, the seed is still so tiny. The whole program is written there. 
Now, if that analogy is valid, what does that tell us about the relationship of our future resurrection bodies to our body now? They are related. And each one of us has an individual body, individually distinct. That means everybody will have an individually distinct resurrection body. Not all, you know, it doesn't, everybody's resurrection body doesn't look the same. So, there's a continuity between our present bodies and our resurrection bodies. Verse 43, though, says there's a difference. It says, one is sown in dishonor, but is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. So there's a difference between our present bodies and our resurrection. I notice also in the language in verse 42, back a verse. The first one is perishable, but the second one is not perishable. Now this is utterly foreign to our experience because we live in a fallen world. In fact, had we been in the garden prior to the fall, uh, Adam and Eve's body was destructible. It was perishable. It wasn't perishing yet, but it was perishable. It could have died. But the resurrection body apparently can't die. And this is a very sobering thing because it means there are no more chances. That once we are resurrected, uh, we've, there's no more conversions, there's no more rege- everything is fixed from that point on. So it's a sobering thought that whatever we want to do to shape our lives for eternity has to be done now. And we can waste a lot of time not thinking about that because once the resurrection body happens, whatever that thing is that happens, it locks us in. So that we are, the potential is, is sort of fixed there. Yeah, we have you know, all eternity to worship God. But that resurrection body is a function of the present life that we live. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Citation, by the way, from where? Genesis chapter 2. And you notice he doesn't say, verse 45, it's written in the second creation story. See? He didn't believe in two creation stories. He didn't study under the modern universities and didn't get his PhD, so poor guy didn't understand that there were two creation stories here. However, the spiritual is not the first, but the natural, then the spiritual. First man is from the earth, second man is from heaven. That's another interesting observation. In Genesis 2, where did the first body come from? God shaped the sand, the dust of the earth. Remember this simple story. Now he's saying the resurrection body doesn't come from the earth. Whatever that happens in the resurrection body, it's coming from above. It's coming from outside the earth. There's some power, there's some shaping force that comes to this planet to build the resurrection body. Um, Verse 48, as is the earthly, so are those who are earthly. As is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This word resurrection has to do with an understanding of the thing that we mentioned in Genesis 3, the second great event, which is the fall. Remember this? 
go back to this slide that shows the issue of good and evil. And when we went back to this, going back to this, remember we said, here's paganism. It has no break with good and evil. It's, it's, a, it's a position of utter despair. And it's amazing that brilliant, intelligent, intelligible people are so blinded, not being regenerated, so blinded that they can't see that this goes on forever. There's no escape from this thing. You can talk reincarnation and all the wheels you want to, but there's nothing, there's no escape from this. It just keeps on going. But the Bible has this thing up in history. And God created the universe good. He tolerates the mix of good and evil for a time, the day of grace. And then he sets it aside right here. And at that point, he starts separating the good from the evil. And of course, he's already doing that in our sanctification and salvation. But now I want to think in terms of this bifurcation, this split in the road, as the resurrection. Because at that point, there is no turning back. At that point, the split has occurred, and there is no more crossovers. So that's why resurrection is an extremely powerful and very moving event, and we'll talk more about that as we go on. But the meaning of the resurrection is this finality, it's this final thing. And um, it's the beginning of eternity. Now, a spirit body would be like an angel. Can angels manifest in physical bodies? Apparently so. They eat food in the Old Testament. Um, two of the angels move the gravestone, the tomb. So evidently, one, you know, they could show up here tonight in you know, normal clothes and we would not perceive them to be different. And it's fascinating to speculate about angels appearing as people and then just disappearing. I mean, you've all heard stories about these strange deliverances of people, Christians delivered from persecution or suffering or something by this person that shows up and then lo and behold, they're gone. They don't know where they came from, no tracking of them, no identity. And, and there's the stories. Now, whether that was a real person or whether it was an angel, we don't know. But angels can do that. But angels are not the same as resurrection. This is an immortal version of the human body. Angels apparently can metamorphose, metamorphosize. They can change form. Because in the Psalms it talks about God um, giving the law with his angel powers, angelic powers, as flame, fire and wind. So the angels can appear as fire and wind, but they can also appear as people. Well, that's weird. Talk about changing the kinds. So the spirits have this, 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 function, this um, transformation ability. So this is not the same as this. So be careful. And this was the issue with Thomas. He, he thought Christ was just a spirit. This could be an angel or this could be a body, just the soul, like Samuel came up to King Saul. Uh, in his soul, didn't have a body, and this would be the state after death, prior to the resurrection. So angels and souls are spiritual bodies. They don't seem to have mass, they don't touch, you know. But resurrection, it does. 
Now, the third word we want to understand is resuscitation. And that would be an example in John chapter 11 with Lazarus. Now, this is a resuscitation, but this is not a resurrection. It may be emblematic of the resurrection, maybe an illustration of some things of the resurrection, but by itself, this is not resurrection. Now, it's rather remarkable. This is a miracle, just like the resurrection is a miracle. And um, when you go to... Uh, John chapter 11, uh, verse 39, Jesus instructs them to go to the grave of Lazarus. And so he tells Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time it's going to be a stench. He's been dead four days. So now we're talking about a corpse. And Jesus said, did I not say to you, if you will believe, you'll see the glory of God? So, they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And I know that you hear me always, but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that thou didst send me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come on out of there. And he who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. His face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Rather startling example. It might make 60 minutes or something. Um, but the point is that Lazarus would eventually die again because the resuscitated body is still a mortal human body miraculously changed and the soul, by the way, reunited I mean, his soul had separated from his body and Paul works in a funeral park I hope you don't have too many resuscitations over there, Paul Um, but it would be tough if they... uh, Disembalm the body here, then God have to make blood and everything else, get the fluids out and rebuild it, reconstruct the whole thing. But that's a resuscitation. So resuscitation, spirit, and resurrection. Tonight we're talking about resurrection. We're not talking about the spirit body. We're not talking about resuscitation. We're talking about resurrection. So let's um, focus on. if you know on your notes on page 101 down at the bottom, um, what we're talking about is the factuality of the resurrection. The Bible asserts that the resurrection happened. It was observed. Jesus walked around, showed himself alive after many infallible proofs. It was not a resuscitation. Last sentence, page 101. And I give you Old Testament verses. So you have all those references built in there. Jesus' resurrection body could appear and disappear, and so forth. Okay, now we want to move, and we started doing this by looking at the vocabulary tonight. Now we want to concentrate not just on the fact of the resurrection, but we want to deal now with more of the meaning and the interpretation of it. So, we're moving now to the meaning of the resurrection, how it is viewed in Scripture. There's a context. Every word has a context. And we're going to go back now into the Old Testament to get the flow and the flavor and the context of resurrection. Because unfortunately, today, many Christians have never heard of the resurrection in terms of the Old Testament. They've heard the story of Jesus rising from the dead. It's told every Easter. Go through the whole New Testament story, which is wonderful. But let's not forget that the people who lived that story 
who did visit the tomb on the third day, who talked to Jesus afterward, were all Jews who knew the Old Testament. And moreover, the Lord Jesus, and told before the resurrection, he told his disciples this was going to happen. But he didn't have any New Testament scriptures. Jesus didn't have any 1 Corinthians 15. He didn't have any Gospel of John. He didn't have any of the book of Hebrews. He had nothing. He had no New Testament. So, in teaching about the resurrection, what Bible did Jesus have to use to teach about the resurrection? He had to teach out of the Old Testament. No, I never saw the resurrection in the Old Testament. A lot of people never saw it. And it's, it's not too obvious in the Old Testament. So we're going to take some time now to move to the meaning of the resurrection. And to do that, we're going to go back to the Old Testament. We want to understand how Jesus understood this. And how he wanted his disciples to understand it. If you turn to Luke chapter 20, verse 27... Here is a central passage on the resurrection prior to the resurrection. So Jesus is still operating. He's under the dispensation of the law. And church age hasn't started. Resurrection hasn't occurred. And in Luke chapter 20, verse 27, there came the Pharisees who said there is no resurrection. Well, now if... You're reading along a text and you see something like that's written. What does that tell you about the Jewish community and the doctrine of the resurrection? Let's think about it. If, if someone were to come to you and tell you that, well, Judaism didn't know any resurrection, that's a figment of the Christian imagination. What does this verse tell you why that view is wrong? It says the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. Well, what does that mean? It means that some Jews did believe in the resurrection. And when did they believe? Before or after the resurrection of Jesus? They believed it before the resurrection of Jesus. So, Judaism had a resurrection. So, it's not true that the resurrection is something new that happened in the New Testament. It's embedded into the Old Testament. The Sadducees were just one subset of Jews that happened to deny the resurrection. They questioned him. They sang, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, If a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he's childless, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife. I mean, these guys had to spend two or three weeks thinking this one up. There were seven brothers, and they took a wife and died childless. The second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died. And by the time you were number seven, you'd be wondering about marrying that lady. And all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. <laughs> In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. So that's the chaos of history now. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age, that's the future age to come, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For neither can they die any more, for they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So the first thing Jesus said, and see, what he's doing here, let's follow his logic. His logic is deep here. This is not an easy passage to go through. 
And it's mind-blowing and boggling to think how the Lord Jesus handled Old Testament Scripture. I mean, the stuff that he got out of that text uh, would probably embarrass us as we walk away thinking, boy, I never even started my Bible study. Look what this guy's pulling out of the text. Well, what, first of all, he's challenging the method of the Sadducees. Here's, here's Mr. Sadducee. And what he has done is he has taken the natural world, here's the natural world from creation to his moment in time. And he's learned certain things about it. Things like marriage, things like reproduction. In fact, what he's learned from the Sadducee, from creation, he's learned all about the natural body. He's learned all about reproduction. He's learned all about marriage. Now, here's the fallacy in the reasoning. He has automatically assumed that all of that stuff is the same across this resurrection barrier. That it's the same on the other side of the barrier as it is on this side. Danger. On what basis do you make that assumption? That was the underlying assumption of the whole argument. So, notice how Jesus handles the arguments here. What he does, he comes right up and he, he looks at the whole argument that's been built on this, this assumption. And what does he do? Boom. Pulls out the rug. So, he denies the very method of the Sadducean argument. Because the Sadducean argument is an extrapolation argument. Just like we do today and extrapolate present processes in the back, backward into history and claim the universe is millions and billions of years old because the radioactive decay constants right now are very, very high. The half-lives are very high. So, the first thing he does is he undercuts the logic. Now let's see what he does. But that the dead are raised. Now he comes to the doctrine of the resurrection. The dead, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, first, let's stop right there and let's go back to that text. It's Exodus 3.6. So just hold the place and let's go back and see if... Put ourselves back there. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Because there's something the Lord sees here. Of course, he was, he was the hare. But in this text, he's pointing out something. Now, here, here's the benefit of allowing God to teach us about his own scriptures. Because who was in the burning bush? The Son of God. And who is the Lord Jesus Christ? The Son of God. Think he knows how to interpret what happened in Exodus 3? He was there. Okay, so in verse 4, the Lord saw he turned aside. Remember the burning bush, Moses in verse 3. I must turn aside now. I see this marvelous bush that is not burned up. And the Lord saw he turned aside, and God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, here am I. Don't come near here. Take your sandals off, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, 
I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he's afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have taken heed to their cry, and I come down, and so forth and so on. Now, in verse 6 is a clause that Jesus picks up on. And it's this clause. I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, I'm sure most of us would read that, I would, as a historical reference to the past. In other words, when God is saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, we would think of it, straightforward reading, that what he meant to say is, I am the God of the man who lived centuries ago. I am the God of his son, Isaac, who also lived centuries ago. I am the God of Jacob, who lived centuries ago, much like we might say, uh, I am the God of George Washington. I am the God of Abraham Lincoln. And we would all accept that, and we would say that's a historical reference. That's, you know, he's the God of that person back there. Apparently, the Lord Jesus says that's not how we should have taken this. We should have seen something else about this passage. When the Lord picks up on this, let's turn back now to Luke. Now he's going to tell us what we should have seen in that passage. He says, and notice in verse 37, he's teaching about the resurrection now. He says, that the dead are raised. So, the fact that resurrection occurs, Moses shows. Well, now how the heck did Moses show? He never even talked about the resurrection in Exodus 3.6. But Jesus says, Moses, if you read the passage right, you have to believe in the resurrection. Why, Lord? Why do I have to believe in the resurrection based on that verse? That doesn't look straightforward to me. Well, it must have been straightforward to him because that's what he's saying. We can't say Jesus' argument here in verse 37 is wrong. The logic is faulty. He says that the resurrection Moses showed... When it were where, he, he quotes just that part of the verse. He doesn't even say, the God of your Father, notice. Jesus cuts the verse down, he slices out that clause. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then he explains himself in verse 38. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Now, that's, that's hard to think about. There's an awful lot of embedded argument there. This is the kind of argument that I remember when I took a few courses in theoretical math. A guy put step one of the proof on the board, and, you know, it was our job to do the 52 and a half steps to get down to the last step. And he'd say, and it can be shown that. Boom. And you knew that, yeah, it can be shown. I don't know how to do it, but it, you can go from step one to 63. And that's what the Lord's doing here. He doesn't go over all the individual steps in the logic chain. But he says, if you understand what I'm saying, in Exodus 3.6, you will believe in the resurrection. So, the challenge to us is, can we reconstruct the logic that the Lord Jesus is using here to to get this deduction? And it appears that his logic is something like this. He starts out, step one, that God, let's just say God of Abraham, 
And it is present tense. God is, He is the God of Abraham. It doesn't say He was the God of Abraham. It says He is the God of Abraham. <clears throat> now, every once in a while you run into people, you know, they say, well, we can't trust the Bible because, I mean, it's a lot of, lot of different variations in the text. Do you notice that this argument is constructed on one verb tense? So when you see this, this slighty little argument about, um, well, we can't really trust the Bible because all all different readings and variants. Well, then how come the Lord Jesus Christ is building an argument out of the syntax of a sentence? Now, in his day, at least people knew what the present tense was. I have to have a few more steps of explanation today. But the God of Abraham is... And apparently the logic of this is that if God is the God of Abraham, that this Abraham who's dead must not be in a relationship, a proper relationship to this God until he's raised from the dead. Because uh, Abraham isn't resurrected here. In Exodus 3, Abraham wasn't yet resurrected. So Abraham is not yet resurrected. So all we can conclude by looking at the conclusion of the argument is that Jesus is saying, if God, a God of X, implies that X must be immortal. And it must exist forever and ever and the reason we say that he's arguing that he must be immortal, because if he's not immortal, then he can sin and fall away. And that, therefore, to be immortal means when that road bifurcates between good and evil, that God, he will, he will go on the good road and be immortally saved, imperishably saved. But there's more to the argument than even this. Because this by itself doesn't say that, that the, the life or existence of immortality is necessarily resurrection. So the Lord Jesus also has to add that this immortality is a resurrected immortality. It's not eternal existence. Well, how would he make that argument? Why could a person say, well... God of X, X must be immortal, he could be a soul. Why, couldn't, why isn't that sufficient for God to be a God of X? To just simply be, okay, lost his body at death, and now he perpetuates. So, let's draw another picture here. Here's a picture of the person in this life. The person dies, his body goes away, and he has this thing called a soul left. The implication... Jesus reads into Exodus 3.6 is that this state here cannot satisfy the relationship with God. That this relationship with God requires a body. So that if the person's out of the body due to death, here's death, here's the soul, 
The body's gone. This cannot be the final state of affairs, but rather the body must be rejoined. There must be a resurrection body now that is immortal. And only that can satisfy the relationship with God. So Jesus is arguing that the body also must be eternally saved. You can't just save the soul. You have to save the body, or you do not have the full-orbed relationship with God. Now, there's, there's 40 or 50 fine points of argument in this whole thing here. And he just flips right to the end in verse 38. Now, he isn't the God of the dead, he's of the living, and all live to him. And the, some of the scribes, by the way, caught the argument. And they said, you have spoken well. And the others didn't dare raise any more questions. And that ended that discussion this, that afternoon. All right. So let's see what we can tie together here. What do we learn about the resurrection body? What do we learn about the first body? When God created in Genesis... What was the picture in Genesis 2? Let's go back to the first case. Most of us remember that, um, that, that picture. What does God do? He prepares a body. And then what does he do to the, the clay that he's all prepared? He gives a breath. He breathes into that body. Mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And, the, and then what does it say? And the person, what? Became a living soul. So you have a formula that body plus spirit equals soul. Therefore, can the soul be complete without the body? There's a, there's a completeness sub-argument to Jesus' larger argument. And he appears to be arguing that salvation is incomplete unless it also includes the body. You've got to deal with the body. And it, he, his logic must be built on the original creation design that man was crea- man isn't really man without a body. Angels can be angels without bodies, but men and women cannot be true men and women in relationship to God without bodies. Now, there's other instances in the Old Testament of a belief that something like this had to happen. Let's turn to Genesis 17. Now we're going to pick up some specific references in the Old Testament that, uh, you know, if I was going to prove the resurrection, I think I would feel more comfortable with these verses than Exodus 3. That's because I don't yet fully appreciate everything that's contained in Exodus 3. Genesis 17.7 Notice in here what word is used of the Abrahamic covenant. It says... I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you through all their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Again, we hurriedly read this like it means 
he will be the covenant of this guy, and then he dies. Then he's going to be the covenant of this descendant, and he dies. Covenant of this descendant, and he dies. Covenant of this descendant, and he dies. Whereas the meaning of the text seems to be that the covenant keeps on going to the guy over here. Not just Isaac and Jacob and all the descendants. Yeah, that's true. But it remains a covenant for Abraham. Abraham, somehow his existence is guaranteed in a relationship with God by this covenant. And he can't have a complete relationship with God without a body. So the implication is that he have a body. Now, Abraham recognized that something had to be implied by this. Remember in um, Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. They go up to sacrifice and... um, he tells the people that he leaves behind that my son and I are going to come back to you. So he had to believe in something. Now you could argue, well, that's just a belief in resuscitation, not resurrection. But I think the Lord would argue with us about that, based on the way he's handling Exodus 3, 5 and 6, that I meant more. When I said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to be your God forever... I mean that I'm going to raise you up from the dead. And you are go- I'm going to be your God forever. And it, I'm not going to leave you naked without your body. That's not, I haven't saved you completely. I haven't saved you fully and completely until I've given you your resurrection body. My job is undone until then. Down on the bottom of page 102 in the notes... J. Barton Payne, who for many years was the Old Testament uh, professor at Wheaton, in the Old Wheaton, says the Old Testament had already presented the fact of the dichotomy of a human nature, a body that returns to dust, and of the soul or spirit that at death returns to God. But at the same time, the Old Testament teaches, here it is, teaches the unity of man's whole person. And it was by means of this latter truth that God seems to have led the thinking of his people toward an appreciation of an eventual restoration of the entire man, body and spirit reunited. On page 103, I give you examples out of the Old Testament where Uh, You have some resuscitation, but then you have the strange case in Exodus 5, uh, Genesis 5.24 of Enoch, who was raptured. You have the strange case of Elijah. Whoa, what's their state? Were they resurrected? Some strange going on there. It's like they're they're raptured, and, you know, whether they're given a resuscitated body or something in, in the interim, or what goes on, but there's some strange thing going on here. Now, we don't have to solve the whole mystery of what was went to appreciate the fact of what's going on here. If God calls Elisha and Enoch to himself, he calls them while they're yet living before they've died in their mortal bodies. So there's a transformation going on here. It's like, it's like death is kind of a, um, an unnecessary thing. And God bypasses that if he chooses which he will at the rapture of the church. A lot of people are going to bypass. So death isn't necessarily always the destiny of the human body. But whether it is or it isn't, the body we have, whether while we're wearing it 
or whether after we've discarded it, that body is going to be changed. And it's got to be changed because for some reason, and it gets back to creation design, God designed us for bodies. Unlike angels. Now, there are two passages in the Old Testament that you would have thought Jesus would have gone to. Because these two verses do mention something that it makes resurrection explicit. The first one is Isaiah 26, 19. Now remember when Isaiah ministered. See, here's where the biblical framework and a sense of the history of these books help you understand sort of the innuendos here, the, the implications. If we go to the time of Isaiah's writing, what events were taking place? Let's, let's read Isaiah in the light of the history in which that man lived, prayed, and ministered the Word of God. He lived right in here. The time when the two kingdoms, the north and the south kingdom, were in decline. Was there, an, there was an immediate disaster facing the nation Israel. They were going to go basically out of history for a while. Disappear from history. And the prophets in this period of time are preparing the nation for its demise. So Isaiah chapter 26 is a passage where he, he's talking about uh, all the stuff that's going to happen. And he gets down and he makes a statement over in verse 19. And he says, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Now, that is a very strong pro-resurrection verse. And it's coming at a time when they needed hope because they saw everything collapsing around them. Another passage is found in Daniel chapter 2 verse uh, chapter 12 verse 2 so if you turn there Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 This is quite clear nobody argues this Liberals, however, believe that Daniel was written late and it was written just prior to the New Testament, so the resurrection doctrine had already happened and so forth. We don't believe that. We believe Daniel is Daniel and that he wrote right here during the exile. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now that introduces another sobering thing that one usually doesn't hear about when the resurrection doctrine is taught. That all men will receive resurrected bodies. That's the destiny of all men. When we go back to the, the, this good-evil diagram, 
when God chooses to separate, all men will receive resurrection bodies. And that's what's so chilling about the resurrection. We're going to see that more and more. The resurrection is a very scary doctrine. Because the resurrection says that once you're resurrected, you can't die again. You are now forever locked in concrete, as it were, into the destiny that you've chosen. Those who have received Christ, those who have believed on Him, will be in the resurrection of the just. Because they have given up good works, and they've said that if I'm ever going to attain righteousness, it's going to be Christ's righteousness. For those who have said, I'm going to do it myself, thank you, and God will say, fine, do it yourself. And will be faced with the horror of living in a resurrected body forever and ever and ever that can never be destroyed, but can, all, but can feel pain and so forth. Now, you know, when people feel pain, and you've seen death scenes and read it in books and stuff, and maybe you've personally seen it, you know, when people are dying, after a while, they just want to die to get rid of the pain. And it may be psychological pain, it may be physical pain, but there's a relief in death. There's no relief in this resurrection because there's no way to get back out of the resurrection body. That's why it's called a horror. It's a resurrection to life and a resurrection to condemnation. And this is why the gospel is so tremendously important. And Daniel, you see, he mentions both the resurrections. He says they shall everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Notice the word everlasting used for both. Okay, there's one other passage. So I want to show you the three passages. And you might have to write this one down because I didn't put it in the notes. But in that paragraph where you see on page 103, the second paragraph, it's Isaiah 26, 19. That's one verse. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Now we'll turn to Job 19. So back before the book, just before the Psalms, turn to Job chapter 19. And this is familiar from Handel's Messiah. Remember the choir and the orchestra playing the big crescendo music and then the, 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 the singing that Handel has. And it's for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes shall see and not another, my heart faints within me. But you see, in verse 26, from my flesh... I shall see God. So there's three verses that show the resurrection in the Old Testament. Job 19, Isaiah 26, Daniel chapter 12. It's not new with the New Testament. And Jesus' inference is that underlying all the covenants of the Old Testament, the resurrection is implicit. So the resurrection is both implicit and explicit. Now, I want to, in the closing moments of our class, and I want to go now toward the culmination of this section of the notes. We talked about the fact of the resurrection. What we're doing now is developing the significance or the meaning of the resurrection. 
Uh, and I'm quoting on page 103 a passage from Dr. Ladd, who is one of the prominent evangelical New Testament theologians for many, many years. I think he's still, still alive, I'm not sure. Um, wrote, a, wrote one of the top evangelical theologies of the New Testament. Jesus' resurrection is not an isolated event that gives to men the warm confidence and the hope of a future resurrection. It is, you see what he's saying? It's not an isolated event. It's not an isolated event. It's part of a bigger plan. You've got to see the resurrection in the light of the bigger plan. So it's not an isolated event. It is the beginning of the eschatological resurrection itself. If we may use crude terms to try to describe sublime realities, we might say that a piece of the eschatological resurrection has been split off and planted in the middle of history. The first act of, it should be the drama, not the grammar, of the last day has taken place before the day of the Lord. So with the resurrection, we now have something that is quite amazing. And this... Um, becomes the basis actually for the Christian life and the exchange life and all the rest of the stuff that follows out from this. But this is our first glimpse in this series of this truth. And that is that if this is the line of history and we have the end of history here with the eternal state, what has happened with the resurrection is that one person, Jesus Christ, has personally gone through this last moment of history and inside time has had it happen to himself. He is the leader. He is the one who will become the king of kings of the eternal state. So he is resurrected now. And he is, he's all done. He's finished the race. And he's arrived. And he's been the first member of the human race to make it. Now, the fact is that he made it means that the resurrection is coming off. It's scheduled. It isn't going to be thwarted now because the key guy is in place. He's already, as it were, he's at the finish line and he's proven that humanity is going to get there because he's gotten there. Now, this produces a rather awesome view of history. And so, in the bottom of page 103, I follow that up. And I quote, I give you the New Testament passages where the New Testament authors are hungrily lapping up this truth. And it's undergirding all those great promises in the New Testament. I'll, I'll show you a few of those in a moment. But what I want you to do is just pause for a moment and just reflect that when you see the resurrection, not just as an isolated event, but you see it in its cosmic setting, that the very end of the universe has occurred already with Jesus Christ. That he has inaugurated the next universe. He's the first part that exists of this new coming, new heavens and the new earth that's yet to come. It already exists at least in one human body right now, tonight. There's no question about the new heavens and the new earth ever coming to pass. They've already begun to come to pass. What is the significance then of Jesus' resurrection within biblical thought? It is the presence of the ultimate goal of history within history today. 
No other religion or philosophy of history can point man to what the final goal of history looks like. Communism, for example, makes stupendous claims of the future redeemed classless society. But communism cannot offer today an actual concrete example of the kind of person who will live in this society. Nobody has a, a prototype. Biblical Christianity, on the contrary, can point to the resurrected God-man-king as the kind of person who will inhabit the kingdom of God forever. And John picks this up, and if you turn to 1 John 3, it's explicitly stated in this language. But it's usually missed because we don't see the resurrection in its proper biblical context. 1 John, chapter 3, verse 2. A great summary. And it shows you the apostles thought this way. We're right on track. This is exactly the way the apostles were thinking. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And obviously he's talking about coming back in the resurrected body. And we, sh we will be like him at that point. We will be raptured. We will be the same with him. And see, he ties it into the whole plan of salvation because the previous verse, verse 1 of chapter 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. We sing this around, you know. And that's nice. But, but it loses its power if you never in the first place understand the context of the Apostle John's thinking. It just becomes a verse to kind of sing music to. For this reason, the world does not know us because it didn't know Him. But we now are the children of God. Now, present. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. So John says, there's a lot of things. I don't know what, all the details. But see, that's the incomprehensible deity. That's omniscience. I'm not omniscient. Apostles weren't omniscient. They had to trust just like we have to. But we know one thing, that when He appears, we're going to be like Him. We're going to share in this eschatological, end-of-history mode of existence. So, one of the, uh, we started this chapter by pointing out that Buddha didn't rise from the dead. Confucius didn't rise from the dead. Muhammad didn't rise from the dead. And no one in Judaism rose from the dead. Jesus Christ is the only person on the face of world history that ever rose from the dead. Ever. Now, there's been resuscitations. There's been the mythical God-men walking the planet. But show me where there's been a resurrection. Show me where there's the claim of a resurrection. It's absolutely unique because only in Christianity is history finished in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay. We're going to conclude this by looking at some of the New Testament references. Let's turn to Colossians. We're going to get into this more a little bit when we get into the doctrine side, but right now we're just kind of warming up and looking at some of the, of the flavor of how the resurrection comes off in the New Testament epistles, which aren't really concerned with the fact of the resurrection so much as they're concerned with the conclusions of it. In Colossians is a good one. Um, maybe, the, maybe if we go to Colossians 1, um, 15. 
Remember this passage, he's, 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 his Christology, he's teaching the, the depth of the person of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. See, Jehovah's Witnesses take this firstborn to mean that Jesus Christ is firstborn of creation. We're all going to be created, so he was created because he's firstborn. That misses the point. The point of verse 15 is that he is the one who is over the creation. He is the one who inherits the creation. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords over all creation. For by him are all things created and so forth. See, if they just read one more verse, verse 16. By him all things are created. All things, A-L-L. All things are created. He's before all things. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Notice this. So now, what is Paul doing in verse 18? He's picking up the resurrection. Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Who gets there first? Jesus does. Now in Colossians 3, verse 1, is a practical exhortation. It says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, and that's the mystery, by the way, in the epistles, there is a spiritual resurrection that happens at regeneration that is preparatory to our physical resurrection, and it's already past tense. It's already happened. It happens at the time you trust in Christ. The problem is that we live in the sinful world, the fallen world. Satan is a blinder of our minds, and he blinds us to this great truth. You've heard it sometimes expressed in the exchange life, so on, but this is where it's rooted, right here. It's rooted in the resurrection that somehow spiritually comes into our soul. The life of the Lord Jesus, now in his resurrection body, somehow gets transferred at the moment of regeneration to us. If then, and you are, you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So he insists that our focal point is on this eschatological end of history. That we are to keep in mind not only the Lord, but the Lord in his resurrection body. That he's already arrived and making a place for us. All right, next week we're going to go on to some of the unbelieving responses. And some of these are real doozers. And I, I apologize for having big, long quotes, but you wouldn't believe me if I just quoted two or three sentences. I mean, you've got to see this perversity in all of its glory. Just driving to class tonight, my wife was telling me she heard on the radio, now somebody's come up with a new theory to explain away the resurrection. Jesus had a twin brother who just showed up on the scene, identical to him, and, uh, you know, they reverse roles. I mean, anything except what the scripture says now. It gets back to what I always said, you know, everybody, oh, we don't know, we're so humble, we're so intellectual, we don't know everything. But one thing we do know, the Bible isn't true. Father, thank you for the Bible that is true. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminates our hearts. Help us to understand more fully the power of the resurrection and its meaning. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. We'll just have a, a short session here tonight, unless, unless we get into a big, long Q&A thing. Um, questions? You might want to raise a question. Yes, Debbie. Um, I'm just intrigued with the, just the physical uh, change in the resurrection body. 
The Shroud of Turin is a very interesting uh, thing. I have never had a chance to, to my own satisfaction, read enough about it. But your observation, I think, is the important thing that even if it, if it isn't that, it's the idea that when Jesus' natural body was transformed into a resurrection body, that it, was, it wasn't just a spiritual thing, but it left physical evidences. And um, that, that is amazing. Um, but that, that thought about the resurrection body leaving physical residue, leaving uh, the, uh, maybe a flashed energy uh, fossil, fossilized evidence of a flash of energy of some sort, I mean, it's very intriguing. I, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised based on the fact that the resurrection body is a body, after all. And um, it's just a mysterious thing. And I think it's profoundly threatening. Um, if, you'll, uh, if you'll peek ahead in the notes, uh, I'm going to cover this later. Um, but I want you to... Um, there, there's a wonderful quote in here that I found several years ago by a friend of mine that I went to seminary with. Uh, yeah, page 109. My, my wife handed it out tonight. Um, we'll go, we'll, we'll, I'll go across this later, but the, the, the second quote on the page, page 109, uh, Dr. Pilkey, and he's just been in the context of his book talking about C.S. Lewis and what a powerful influence C.S. Lewis has had in church history. Uh, but he notes the fact that as society becomes more and more corrupt and paganized, um, it takes a more shocking apologetic. And in the context, as he's, he's, he previous to this, he's been talking about Sigmund Freud and tying it in. He's, he's a literature professor. He's been tying it in with Gothic literature. Uh, when he wrote this, by the way, we didn't have kids walking through high school with, with black fingernails and so forth. Um, but the, the Gothic fad is a symptom of this whole thing. Lewis's apologetic approach, grounded in reason, is not well adapted to those parts of the world where apostasy has advanced so far that anarchy reigns and Freud's dark power of the id vies for immediate social supremacy. That's the idea you give in to your uh, sexual predilections or anything else that happens to come out of your depraved human heart. Confrontation with such satanic power was especially of Charles Williams. He's referring here to a Christian author. The final form of apologetics is supernaturalistic, apocalyptic, and judgmental. It threatens the enemies of Christianity with the consequences of unrepentant death, requiring them to choose heaven or hell today and experience one or the other tomorrow. Although most apostates are infuriated by threats of judgment, the human conscience remains open to this very elemental sort of conviction. 
In Christian apologetics, the greatest of all doctrines is the resurrection of the dead, an idea so powerful that it, rather than sex, holds the key to the mystery of human existence. When, wherever it is gone, watch this, this is classic. Wherever it is clearly conceived as a metaphysical reality, by that he means that it, all men are going to be involved in this. It's not just Jesus in the tomb out of Jerusalem. Wherever it is clearly conceived as a metaphysical reality, resurrection annihilates every premise and every conclusion of the Marxist, Freudian, and Darwinian schools of thought. It erases the premise of Marxism by positing a version of humanity independent of the natural food chain. Now, what does he mean by that? It means that what is Karl Marx's whole philosophy? Why did he, was he for revolution? Because it cured poverty. That man, was a bit, man basically is materialist. The highest aspirations of man are, are material fulfillment. And what is the most material fulfillment is food. So that's what he's getting at. And resurrection don't necessarily apparently have to eat. Maybe you do, but you know what he's getting at. That you're not dependent on the material world of the present. So it says he erases the premise of Marxism by positing a version of humanity independent of the natural food chain. It cancels the premise of Freudianism by furnishing a degree of vitality so absolute that temporary sexual euphoria loses all meaning. And it destroys the whole point of evolution by bringing mankind to absolute physical perfection in an instant of transformation. Now just think about the power. So this, see, we haven't... It's more than just an Easter story. The resurrection has all these implications and ramifications. And one of them is this last one, which I love, that, love that quote. An instant of transformation. Not a million years. Not even a second. But all of a sudden, a tremendous discontinuity in our time flow. And you step from one moment into the next. And there's a, a radical shift and change. There's been a transformation. And it, it's, it's so totally beyond us in the physics, in the biochemistry, in the whole, everything we know, it, it falls to the ground before the resurrection. So what that does for us intellectually is, it says, what Hebrews 11.3 says, that the things which we see all around us, touch, taste, feel, you know, all these things that we feel that we, we like the Sadducees, we're used to it and we always extrapolate it into the future, use it as the basis of reasoning. And wait a minute, wait, whoa. Hebrews 11.3 says that all these things come about not from the things which are appear, but from those things which do not appear, from the living word of God. So it goes back to the fact God speaks. I mean, think of it this way. One day, he actually calls, the resur he calls for the resurrection. What happens to the DNA, the biochemical chemistry of our blood system? What happens to all the molecules, the diseases, the cancers, the bacteria, the viruses that suddenly might be indwelling in a body and bam, resurrection happens. It sort of makes it all trivial, doesn't it? And that's that, the glimpse of that power of the resurrection is what stimulates and that's what Pilkey's trying to get at here, is he glimpsed the implication of the resurrection. It is a complete and utter refutation of all natural thought. Because no natural thought, no matter how brilliant it is today, can predict the resurrection. The resurrection is not going to be caused by something inside the space-time matrix that we're living in. It's something that comes from outside. And if that comes from outside, then we're not living in a closed universe. 
And if we're not living in a closed universe, then of course prayer makes sense because we're praying to have these other spiritual forces move into history as a result of prayer. And so, so see, the, the resurrection is all part of this enveloping frame of reference again. It, it becomes one more brick, one more vital truth to surround the perversions and, 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 and surround them and make them impotent. It cuts them off because it cuts off their premise. What Jesus did to the Sadducees, that we saw in that text tonight, that's what the resurrection does. It utterly annihilates the methodologies that are being used. Cuts them right off. So, that's, that's, so when you see the Shroud of Turin or something like that, that's not to be... Um, I mean, we may debate whether that particular Shroud was due to the resurrection. It might have been something else. But the point is, that sort of thing should not be considered rare, or it should not be considered um, unbiblical, because it's exactly what you'd expect. I mean, can you imagine, can you dream, can you, in your fantasies of your mind, uh, visualize what it would have been like if you had a video camera, and you were pointing into the tomb when the resurrection happened? You talk about capturing an event. I would hold, and I would defend the idea that the video camera would have captured something. It wasn't some spiritual thing invisible to the camera. It's no more invisible to the camera than the SWAT team going into that house last night. Or yesterday, or whenever it happened, night before. It was all captured. And the resurrection is that sort of thing. Capturable on video. Real. And it's stunning. Because it's absolutely unlike anything ever in all of history. Even all of biblical history has never seen a resurrection. That's the first time the real thing actually happened. Is the resurrection body the, the identical um, uh, creation of the body before the fall? Or do you believe that it's even something different than um, what Adam and Eve had in the beginning before the fall? Oh, is, is the, the, the relationship of the resurrection body to the natural body, the only help, Debbie, on that is the analogy that we see Jesus using the seed and the plant. Somehow the resurrection body is that which flows out of our present bodies. So our pre- the identity that we have, our personal identity, is not erased in the resurrection body. And that's why... That's why, on the plus side, that's why the scriptures are so adamant about we were created in good, to good, for good works. And that's why the Bible talks about rewards and so on, because what we do in this present body is important to that future body. But, having said that, our natural body has two things. First, it always was mortal potentially mortal. Adam and Eve, before the fall, their bodies were potentially mortal. And, and, you know, it could have gone both ways. But after the fall, all of us, we've never known bodies that were even potentially mortal. Ours are really mortal. And every time you look in the mirror, you see more about the, your immortality showing. Say. So, so we, we don't know. And that's what Pilkey's point, trying to point out here when he says the ecstasy of the resurrection body surpasses anything that we would have today by way of ecstasy. Because the, the idea of having a release 
into a body that can do all kinds of things would be, must be amazing. Truly amazing. No aches, no pain, no, you know, none of the um, things that weigh us down today. Uh, it's just an ecstatic thing to think about uh, the resurrection body as a real thing now, not just as a religious symbol or something like that. Nice thought for religious people. That's not what we're talking about. So, we don't know the exact... We know that Jesus' body in his resurrection from the, all the evidence we have in the New Testament, it was similar but wasn't identical and it was enough difference so guys who knew him real well didn't recognize him right away. Now, people have argued that the reason they didn't recognize him wasn't that the resurrection body was so different, it was that they were so stunned to think that he'd be walking around because in their minds he died. So it might have been um, their shock and their trauma of losing him, they thought, just blinded them to the fact that, well, that couldn't be him. It had to be somebody else. Or was it due to the fact that his body looked a little different? Certainly a lot of people that met him had a little difficulty in recognizing him. But once they recognized him, it seemed to be that no problem. They went on talking and everything else. So, just all it is speculation at this point. Okay, well, um, next week we'll um, keep moving through the resurrection. We probably should finish this area in the next three or four weeks. So, that'll be it for the, for the year.